Hey everyone, great news. We're hard at work on season two of Wireframe. It'll be coming out later this year, so stay tuned. In the meantime, we've got something special for you. It's a live episode of Wireframe that we recorded earlier this month at On Air Fest. That's a conference all about creativity and sound, and it was held at the Wythe Hotel in Brooklyn, New York. From Adobe and Gimlet Creative, welcome to Wireframe, live at On Air Fest here in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Koi Vin, principal designer at Adobe and also the host of this podcast. Now, Wireframe is a show about how design shapes technology to fit into our lives. And back in our first season, we looked at how emojis came to be. We looked at the user experience that inadvertently led to the Hawaii Missile Crisis. We looked at how designers intentionally make the apps we use addictive and much more. And for today's episode, we're going to discuss a technology that seems to be everywhere right now. And it happens to be a perfect fit for On Air Fest. An experimental machine that recognizes the human voice was introduced to the press by its inventor, William C. Dirsch, of the Advanced Systems Development Division. A machine that recognizes the human voice, or what we now call voice-enabled technology. That clip you just heard is from 1962. It refers to IBM's Shoebox project, one of the world's first speech recognition technologies. Shoebox could actually recognize the human voice and do basic arithmetic, but... Just to set some expectations, Shoebox could actually only recognize 16 words, including the numbers 0 through 9. So here's what it sounded like for a user to ask Shoebox to do some math. 9, oh, 2, plus, total. The machine has understood my voice and caused the adding machine to correctly perform these arithmetical operations. You've probably guessed that Shoebox never ended up making it to consumers, but it was an important part of an early wave of research into voice-driven technology. And over the next several decades, other research projects taught computers to recognize larger and larger vocabularies, predict sentence patterns, and even understand different accents. In fact, here's a Microsoft demo, 30 years later, a voice-activated assistant named Petey the Parrot. Petey's job was to play music on your computer. Brace yourself, because this is weird. Good morning, Petey. Let's do a demo. Another day, another CD. What do you want to hear? What have you got by Bonnie Raitt? I have the Bonnie Raitt collection from 1990. Play something from that. What you heard was a pretty raw but not half bad attempt at really making computer interaction conversational. The researchers were on the right track in terms of trying to let users just talk to computers in everyday plain language. No typing, no arcane code, not even any clicking on buttons or menus. And it would be the computer's job to just understand what it heard and act accordingly. So fast forward to the early 2010s. Siri, tell me the temperature in New York. It's 33 degrees outside. Siri, when does spring begin? Spring begins March 20th, 2019. Siri brought this conversational technology to the mainstream. And suddenly, millions of people had their own personal voice-activated digital assistants. But Siri, well, sometimes Siri didn't quite understand you. Siri, what does warm weather feel like? Weather for where? Brooklyn. It's currently 62 degrees in Cape Town, South Africa. So many people would argue that the real breakthrough happened in 2015, 
when Amazon released its very first Amazon Echo smart speaker. So I have a confession to make here. The first time I ever saw an Echo, it was at a friend's office. And I literally asked him, did you buy this as a joke? Because voice still seemed like a gimmick to me. But people really liked the Echo. I mean, they really liked it. In 2016, Amazon had sold 5.2 million of these devices, and they'd go on to sell tens of millions more. So the era of voice is officially here. We are living in it right now. But when you look at the usage numbers, people are using voice in a pretty limited way. They mostly just check the weather or play music, or they'll maybe ask Alexa or Google a funny question or two. But there's so much more that we can do with this medium. And to fulfill this potential, we need to approach voice not just as a technology, but also as a design challenge. Voice is really a new kind of raw material. And to shape this material into truly great experiences, it needs to be designed. And so to discuss this new way of thinking, I have two amazing guests with me today who are doing just that, working at the forefront of user experience design for voice. Will Hall is the chief creative officer at Rain here in New York, an agency that focuses on voice and conversational technologies for brands like Starbucks, Headspace, and Sesame Street. Hello, Will. Hello. And Katie Briggs joins us from NPR in Washington, D.C., where she works as a product designer for voice applications like the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz and the NPR newscast. Hello, Katie. Hi. So thank you so much to both of you for being here. So Katie, I want to start with you. Voice is such a new medium. So I'd just like to understand, what does a voice designer do? Um, and how is that different from someone who might approach voice as an engineer? Sure. So I'm actually a product designer who focuses not only on voice technologies, but also on mobile platforms and a lot of business problems and user problems uh, across our digital platforms at NPR. I'm able to go at some more kind of exploratory problems where our engineers are typically focused on tackling projects once we better understand how we can best serve our users. And so, Will, Rain, the whole agency doesn't focus exclusively on voice, but a lot of your work is in voice. So when you walk in there, is everybody just talking to their smart speakers, like some sort of sci-fi Howard Hawks movie? Is that what it's like? Yeah, I mean, we, it actually is the bulk of what we do now is focusing on voice and conversational AI. And I think one of the biggest differences about the way we do voice, and I would say, and just an engineer, if you get a deck from us on voice, we say you have to focus with blended teams of creative and strategy and engineering. For our approaches, you have to approach this in an interdisciplinary way. If I were to have a t-shirt around how to win at voice, it would simply say to win at voice, you have to think in systems. The skill store is flooded with 100,000 globally, 100,000 applications. And most of them, they're not great. They're not considered, they're not connected to anything else. But the ones that are winning are those that are connected to an interconnected ecosystem. To own something as simple as I want to know X, Y, or Z means that there's an enormous amount of technology that's on the other side of that, that's this talking to that, that's talking to this. And as a designer, I can't simply think about the voice part of it without thinking about the system. Yeah, so something that you just said I think is really worth digging into. There's as many as 50,000 Alexa skills um, in the skill store, but um, by some measures, fewer than you know 3% of them ever get used more than once or twice or, or a few times. So is this a design challenge that can be overcome or, or is there some, some platform um, deficiency here that has to be addressed at a, at a bigger level? Yeah, and I think to that point, that most of them aren't really well considered. Again, they were just sort of thrown up. And I think there's a tendency with new technologies to try to cram previous technology into the new. 
And so you saw this, you know, we were joking earlier about how when you look back at the history of like television ads, the first 10 years of TV ads were written by radio people. And accordingly, when you look at those first TV ads, they were like, they didn't know what to do with their hands. They're holding bottles of Coke and like, I don't know what to do with this. And I think a lot of those early skills were sort of in the, I don't know what to do with my hands phase and era of voice. Mm -hmm. But you realize that those technologies that have gone beyond the obvious of trying to cram the previous into the new, those are the ones that have had success. And a prime example of this related to that question would be the work like we did with Tide. You know, Mm -hmm. on day one of this platform, you had to say things like, Alexa, tell Tide I have a stain. Nobody will ever do that. (laughs) Obviously. And we all collectively know that can't possibly be the case. But that can't be a reason not to do it. So now when you go home and if you were to talk to your Alexa and you say, Alexa, I have a stain. Now she's going to recommend that skill to you. And now as a result of us owning that moment and knowing that the tech was going to evolve to a more conversational and intuitive place, we're getting tremendous re-engagement. Um, but it, it's playing by those rules about figuring out how are people actually going to discover us in a conversational way mm-hmm. and not necessarily requiring on simply media to find me. Yeah, so a lot of companies, like I would imagine Tide, they've probably never done anything in, in voice or in sound before, but... You know, NPR, that seems to be a core strength. And so it seems like there's there's a great confluence of energies here. Is that too simplistic a way of thinking about it? Is, is voice still a challenge to NPR or, or are there some real strengths that they can play to here? NPR is just a content factory specifically of audio content. And so we're making more and more things that we want to be as accessible to the public as possible. And so we have kind of a traditional thinking of voice like on one track where we... Anywhere that you are in the world, you can stream any NPR member station through a smart speaker. Like That's something that we knew we needed to do, and it was a very obvious win and fit for us. But we have a second track that's more experimental where we are trying to figure out, well, we have all of this content. How might we surface it to users in new ways? How might we take existing content and build it out further? A good example of that would be with our Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz that launched a few weeks ago, uh, where we have this news quiz show that's been on the air for more than 30 years. It's very popular with our NPR listeners. Um, And after doing a lot of experimenting and prototyping and testing and research and building, we were able to actually take the concept of that quiz and convince the staff that runs that show to actually create more content that would go specifically in a voice platform. And so we're really trying to think of not just how we can use what we already have and kind of stick to what we know, but also find new ways to grow and continue to kind of gain new audiences, which is really what NPR is consistently striving to do. So we talked about this idea that new technologies very often just emulate the old technologies, at least in the first phase. And a lot of the designers who are working in voice for the first time come from a traditionally visual background or, or primarily visual background. So what does a designer need to learn or unlearn in order to, to work in this medium and, and build experiences that are truly native? Something that I've always been really comfortable with is to really be comfortable in dealing with ambiguity. So when we started uh, some of these smart speaker experiments at NPR, there were really no parameters around what exactly it was we were trying to deliver to stakeholders or what it was we were trying to test with real users. It was kind of the idea that we might want to try something with voice and maybe this quiz or maybe this set of content. Um, But that was kind of it. Like it was very, very hazy. And also like the series of voice experiments was my first time ever really working in voice or conversational UI before Mm -hmm. everything I've done has mostly been visual. And so I really had to unlearn 
um, the value of things being visually appealing <laughs> or pretty. Um, the prototype that we used to test the first concept of the wait, wait, don't tell me skill, I actually built in PowerPoint, <laughs> which hurts to say out yeah. loud. <laughs> um, to show something that was so ugly and so functional was really uncomfortable, but it turned out to be the best solution. And so it was just like stepping back and understanding that there are better, more effective ways to communicate or to build what you're doing without having a, you know, shiny end product is okay. Right. Yeah. And I would also say the hyper-specialization of designers is a relatively new phenomenon. When I look back to designers that I hold up on my Mount Rushmore, they were capital D designers, the Eameses, Lowy, et cetera. And so I think in many ways, yes, there are new disciplines we have to figure out and new muscles. But at the same, but on the other hand, I think it's in some ways a call back to where we came from. I always love the Massimo Vignelli quote, if you can design one thing, you can design anything. I mm -hmm. kind of subscribe to that. And I think voice is evidence of that. To design voice, you have to design a system. And if you're designing a system, it means that, you know, we were talking about the other day about how adaptive design is something we talk about a lot in mobile. But in voice, it takes that up and turns it up to 11. You have a single mode where you're only speaking to a speaker. You also have another mode where you're talking to a speaker with a screen. You have another interaction where you're talking to a speaker with a screen that you can interact with and in an app and in this and in that and the other. There isn't a sort of a school program that's going to have a bolded list to account for that complexity. I think it's about being a capital D designer and sort of returning to our roots. So when, when you're adding to your team, when you're hiring, are you looking for people from these diverse backgrounds? Um, sure. So at NPR, we actually just hired our first official voice designer um, a week or two ago, applicants that had a wide range of backgrounds. And so some people were coming from a more visual space and trying to you know, get into voice. Other folks had already had, which in this kind of field, which is so new, um, it's interesting to see that people already have like voice designer things on their resume because mm -hmm. it just like still seems so shiny and interesting um, and like brand new. I, I want to take a slightly different tech here and talk about bias in voice. Um, when you give certain commands to your smart speaker and it remembers those commands, it, it sort of builds those things and sort of learns a bias that favors you. Um, but I also want to ask about cultural bias because voice is in many ways more human than other technologies. It's certainly more human than a desktop laptop or, or a phone because it's a more natural way of talking, maybe the first way we, we ever used to communicate. And in some ways, people emulate what they hear. And so does this reinforce a sort of homogenous idea of who we are and can design help mitigate this? Because voice doesn't sound like a lot of people's families or households. Something NPR has been dedicated to for a really long time is making sure that we're representing as many voices in America and across the world as we can in our news and in information coverage. Um, and so I think when we think about what we're making available to our users on smart speakers. We really need to be cognizant of which voices are being represented, what content is being surfaced, still like following the same editorial practices we've been following for years about who's being interviewed and like what the conversation is. Um, so I think the work that we're doing as far as trying to provide as many voices as possible through our content, I, I hope cuts through some of that bias on smart speakers, just like it does uh, on the platforms, other more traditional platforms that we've been on. So let's talk about how to actually create a good experience as a voice designer. What's different from creating a great mobile app or a great uh, website? Well, 
when we started doing the smart speaker experiments at NPR, we didn't really have that much of a different approach than we would if we were approaching a new mobile product or website or anything else we were building, just because we were so focused on the problems that we were trying to solve. And so defining what our business problem was and our user problem was, and really kind of going forward from there. Um, and so it wasn't until we actually got into the kind of nitty gritty of building things and better understanding exactly what our users needed on the platform that we could kind of pivot away from some of the more traditional thinking we might have done on traditional digital platforms. One of the things that I've heard a lot is when you're designing something for the phone or for the web, you're really trying to optimize for this best possible path that the user's going to going to hit these marks that that you really need them to hit and trying trying to get everybody to do more or less the same thing. But with voice, you really have to let everybody do everything that they want. And so that's actually a much more complicated problem for a designer. How do you cope with that? Yeah, and I think what you realize is that one of the things that voice does really well that a lot of other technologies don't do is you can think of voice as a focus group of one. And so voice is different than me clicking on a Twitter feed and just, you know, doing whatever. I'm talking to it in a way that's in my home where your products or, or your brand exist. And so we've been capturing those things that people say and getting some really interesting nuances and insights around that. One of the things we've been doing with voice is also mining what's called conversation mining, where you listen to how certain segmentations are speaking to either people or technologies. And we realize that in the case of hospitality, if you mine the front desk for younger consumers that don't want to stay at big hotels, overwhelmingly, the first words out of their mouth is, I'm sorry. Hmm. Overwhelmingly. And you realize that voice is giving a nuance on, let's call them younger, I hate to use the word of millennial, but let's call them millennial, uh, that sort of posture towards hospitality and why maybe that's a contributing factor to Airbnb. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk to you. So what does that mean? And so using voice to get actual insights in a focus group way is, I think, a really good use of voice. That revelation that that a lot of younger people often say, I'm sorry, I think it's really interesting. Because voice is so new, I imagine you guys must have come across really unusual behaviors or, or ways of interacting with voice assistants. Are there any insights that you could offer and any funny stories? We actually brought in real users to test our different uh, smart speaker experiments. So the way we don't tell me quiz. And for all of the experiments that we did, the users really still felt like they kind of had a relationship with the smart speaker, not just like greeting the smart speaker when they came into the room, which several users did, but also making eye contact, even though like I was also in the room mm -hmm. with this user. But when they were addressing the speaker, like they would talk to them, they would look at them like, or now I'm like anthropomorphizing yeah. the speaker as well. Um, but it was just really interesting to start to see what that dynamic was like, even though it wasn't in the context of their own home, like they saw this thing they were interacting with as something that deserved a part of their attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting the attitudinal differences across generations. So younger kids tend to anthropomorphize the technology as we talked about. Folks my age tend to look at it as a tool, as tech, I ask you to do a thing and you do, did the thing I asked you to do. It's very, uh, tends to be utilitarian that way. But older folks, it, it, what you're seeing more and more is that it's breeding a bizarre sense of intimacy. <laughs> and so when you think about voice, if you go to a psychiatrist and you want to tell them about their childhood, they're probably not standing six inches away from you looking in your eyes intently. 
What you do do is you turn down the lights, you avoid eye contact, and you look up and you freeform. And that's the sort of affordance of voice is having that sort of non-intense glowing screen, eye contact, intensity, and isolation that sort of the screen has given us and is starting to breed, again, a more intimate approach. And so when we think about uh, movies like Her, that seems absurd. I don't think it is absurd. Actually, Amazon said that last year over a million people told Alexa, I love you. And I don't think it was sarcastic. It was, it's breeding a new sort of approach and relationship with technology that I think is interesting. Yeah, okay. And, and terrifying. <laughs> and, and really sexy. Yeah. So actually that brings up an interesting sort of territory. There's a natural tension between voice technology and privacy. I mean, voice assistants, they really need your data, right? They really need to be able to personalize experiences for you. They need to listen a lot. They need to remember, and they need to surface what they hear back to you. And is that compatible with privacy, especially with all of the concerns that we have today? And is there a role for design to play here? We've been thinking a lot recently, not just in terms of voice platforms, but kind of across the board with our digital platforms at NPR, how we might use explicit and implicit signals from users to really be smart about surfacing what that user might need at any certain time of day or certain instance or context? How can we use data from other points to then leverage something we have on a voice assistant or something we have on a mobile platform or something else to provide like a not creepy, no. but very smart and kind of welcome experience? So when you do have a question or you are looking for five ways to kill time with the news quiz or you do want to catch up on the headlines, we can provide that to you in a smart way wherever you're looking for it. Yeah, and I would say that it's funny because I think what voice has done is it's, shine, it's shown a light on a thing that's been hiding in plain sight. The fact is, is that big tech knows more about you than you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And the fact that now you have a speaker, now all of a sudden people are freaking out. Why weren't we freaking out before? They knew where you are. They know what you buy. They know what you search. Yes, when you're in incognito mode as well. They know you very, very well. But because voice is using our natural interface, the expectation is all of a sudden, wait, whoa, whoa, wait, that's super creepy. How's that any different than all the data they've been getting? Up well, I think today? some people would argue that vo- uh, a voice assistant is also, or a smart speaker is also passively listening to you all the time in order to to identify the times where you needed to act, but also potentially collecting information as a default mode, yeah, rather I, than just when you're you're showing deliberate intention. Uh, I would agree with that partially. I think that the way our philosophy on this at Rain is, I call it fair trade data. It's like, it's a very clear exchange of what we're getting and versus what you're getting out. You never hide any data we're capturing. And by the way, the platforms, they only, I'm just telling you what they say, I can't speak sure. beyond that curtain. They only wake when they hear their wake word. Everything they listen is parroted back text to speech in your app. Now, I don't work for Amazon. I don't work for Google. So who knows what the actual case is. But I also don't think they have much of an incentive to break that because of the implications of that legally. Great. We're running out of time, but I want to ask you guys one last question. Do you ever put your smart speakers on mute or in privacy mode? I don't. <laughs> but Alexa only hears my like kind of vocal fry female voice about 40% of the time as opposed to my husband's, which is closer to 90%. So ah, like, how much go. of me is she hearing anyway? I, I don't feel like I have to mute super often. Will? You know, working in a place that uses the word Alexa a lot, we they're all on mute. because. <laughs> so yes. At, at home? Not at home. They're okay. just always on, yeah. All right. So I, I want to thank Will and Katie for being uh, such great guests. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. 
It's amazing to get a crash course like that from two people who are defining a whole new medium. Thanks again to Katie Briggs and Will Hall for joining me. What a terrific conversation. This episode was produced by Ricky Novetsky. Abby Rizika is our senior producer, and Rachel Ward is our editor. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Keegan Sanford created our show art. Our theme song is by Peter Leonard. Special thanks to IBM for giving us permission to use their shoebox demo, and to former Microsoft researcher David Kurlander for giving us permission to use his Petey the Parrot demo. Thanks also to the Work by Work crew who organize On Air Fest for inviting us. Learn more about the show at adobe.ly slash wireframe. And if you've got ideas for season two of Wireframe, tweet at me. I'm at Koi on Twitter. That's K-H-O-I. Thanks for listening. <laughs>